Few people throughout history have been as misunderstood and as slandered as Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah. Hi, I'm Ethan. I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're uh, Christians, non-nominational Christians, uh, seeking to be disciples, making disciples in Los Angeles. We're so glad that you've joined us. Thank you for giving us the gift of your time as we continue to explore what God has made known in Christ and through Scripture. And today, we want to consider what we can really know about Bathsheba, how she's been portrayed, and therefore what can we say about Bathsheba. We learn about Bathsheba. It's part of the story of David in 2 Samuel chapter 11 through 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 25, and in 1 Kings chapter 1. It also is part of the story of Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 12 through 25. Very infamously, the chronicler entirely passes over the David and Bathsheba affair, but he did identify Bathsheba as the mother of Solomon in 1 Chronicles 3, 5. Bathsheba means daughter of an oath, but Bathsheba means more like daughter of wealth. Bathsheba is identified as a daughter of Eliam in 2 Samuel 11 and verse 3, uh, Amiel in 1 Chronicles 3 and verse 5. Eliam in 2 Samuel 23 and verse 34 is identified as one of the 30 mighty soldiers of David, and also as the son of Ahithophel the Gilonite, which also adds another layer of intrigue with the fact that Ahithophel is going to align with Absalom when Absalom will rebel later on in the narrative. There always remains a possibility that there are different Eliams involved, but the fact that we have uh, an Eliam who is among David's 30, and Uriah is among David's 30, and Uriah has married Eliam's daughter, it's more likely that that's the situation, that that, that grouping, the, the administration and army of David there is not nearly as large as we might want to imagine that it would be, especially uh, the, cl the group of those who are closest to the king. Now, the Samuel King's narrative maintains coherency. Uh, we may think of it as very different because we've named it 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. We should consider that in the Greek Septuagint, they're called first reigns, second reigns, third reigns, and four reigns, which really help kind of express that continuity. Its final form, no doubt, comes during the days of the exile, maybe somewhere around 575 BC, but it's based on annals and chronicles that were most likely composed during David's own time. Chronicles narrative is later than the Samuel King's narrative, probably around 450 in the post-exilic era. It's based on Samuel King's and similar annals and chronicles as before. Now, the biblical text never provides any concrete information about Bathsheba's age. She's undoubtedly somewhat younger than David, because David would have lived around 1040 to 970 BC in the 11th and 10th centuries, which is a very transitional time. And David has reached this great position of power because the full effects of the collapse of the Bronze Age have come upon the ancient Near Eastern world by the time of David's birth. Uh, by this time, uh, the uh, the Egyptian em uh, Empire has completely collapsed. And after the year of the hyena in 1075, 1075 or so, they uh, fall in what we call a third Amir period with weaker kings and different kinds of administration going on between Thebes in the south and up uh, in near Memphis in the north, and the Libyans end up actually taking over the administration and the army and becoming a much more vital force than the native Egyptian population. Uh, all the other major powers of the earlier age have collapsed already. The Assyrians, uh, who are going, of course, to be such a major power later on, uh, have retreated to their own area and are dealing with their own issues. And so there's no major power at this time. The only true power that's anywhere near actually is what the 
Israelites have been up against the Philistines. The Philistines have come in, uh, having only been uh, the sea peoples that Ramses III had defeated around 1180 BC, and either he settled them or let them take over uh, the southwestern portion of the Levant. And from there, they maintained this great strength for some time, and they oppressed all the people around them, and the Israelites were subjected to humiliating uh, oppression. And this is why they wanted a king. Uh, we start seeing uh, more victories for Israel under Saul, and especially under David. However, the Philistines end up being the reason of Saul and Jonathan's death. And it is David who smashes the Philistines. And, and to use the verb smash is appropriate. Uh, the Philistines will never after David be a significant force that threatens the integrity of Judah, Israel, or anybody else. They continue to live in um, the area of the southwest Levant. They uh, will be exiled by the Babylonians and will never return. Um, but they are not a force that is something that's going to endanger Israel or Judah like they were when David was born. And because David had proven successful against the Philistines, he was able to marshal his armies to also gain success over the people all around him, and was able to get the submission of the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Edomites and the Phoenicians did not bother him. And he's even able to strike victories into the Arameans who have been starting to pour into the land. Uh, the days of the Amorites are definitely over. The Arameans are now taking over. Uh, and we will see the growth of Aramean kingdoms, especially the, the kingdom of Aram based in Damascus. Uh, but that will be something that will only really start in the later days of Solomon and beyond. So David ends up being able to establish this empire. The greatest time of power in Israelite history, uh, where all the other uh, major forces at play are no longer around, and he is the major power. And he has done a lot of this effort by this point, because we see that in this narrative, uh, David is on his older side uh, when we meet Bathsheba, and Bathsheba, of course, will outlive him and, and continue to live into the days of her son Samuel uh, around uh, 970 and following. And so, especially since we know Bathsheba's grandfather is one of David's advisors, uh, and uh, therefore probably an early contemporary of David, we mean by that is Ahithophel is probably older than David, uh, Elime is probably around David's generation, which means Bathsheba would be a generation younger. And therefore, we do best to assume that Bathsheba is about a generation younger, something between 20 and 40 years younger than David. So, this is the situation that we find ourselves in. And to realize that at this time also, David is more a warlord than a king. Yes, Saul and David are king, so is Solomon. When we think of a king over, over his people, we think of a much more centralized state. That's what Solomon was at peace to develop. It did not exist beforehand. Uh, David and Saul are successful warlords who are able to impose their authority on people. That is the kind of kingship they have. This is not to suggest that he's not honored by God. It's just to kind of keep our a perspective and understanding and check when we consider all of this, these things happening. And of course, part of the narrative has been that David has accumulated many wives, uh, Michael, Abigail, uh, and some and others uh, to this point. Uh, and, and that makes the whole thing uh, even worse. So what is going on with the story of Bathsheba? Like we said, it's in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, 1 Kings 1, and in 1 Kings 2. 
So we be, the story begins in the affair. In fact, in the Samuel narrative, David has reached the peak of his power. Everybody around him is submissive to him. His army is off fighting because of uh, the kingdom of Ammon. There's a new son on, on the throne, and he has not provided David the appropriate honor, and his army is out dealing with that. But the author of 2 Samuel tells you he's not there. When the kings normally conduct wars, David sent out Joab with his officers and the entire Israel army. They defeated the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David stayed behind in Jerusalem. And one evening he got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of his palace. Now keep in mind, Jerusalem is up in the mountains. And so David's palace would have been very high up in the city of David. And therefore he would have the ability to look down from the roof of his palace. And there he sees a woman bathing. We'll be very clear about what is said and not says. If she saw her bathing, she is not said to be on her roof. There's, there's some evidence that some people want to suggest that they would bathe on their roofs. Other, on the other hand, a lot of times they'd sleep on roofs because that might be a, a cooler place at night. And so you wouldn't be bathing where everybody else can see you next door. Uh, so we can't be sure at all that she is on the roof. She's not trying to expose herself. We don't even know what David saw of her bathing. We can assume that he got a full view. Uh, of her and naked, she she may have been uh, had some kind of garment on uh, after she, when she was finishing up. We don't know. Again, a lot of this is is stuff that we fill in. Uh, he does see her. She is bathing, and he he uh, very attractive, and so he sends word. Who is this woman? And somebody's asked. So is is this this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Definitely understood the wife of Uriah the Hittite. When David called her, he knew she was a married woman, married to one of his 30 uh, soldiers, also the daughter of one of his 30 soldiers. This woman is very much enmeshed in the kingdom. She is of she is somebody in the kingdom. She may not be, you know, a princess or anything like that, but she has standing uh, because of her family and her relationships, and her place there is enmeshed in the greater story. And so, because messengers came to get her, she went, and uh, he went to bed with her. And the text then explains why she was bathing, that she was purifying herself from her menstrual uncleanness. This also is an, a key to say that when she then uh, goes home and then sends word back, hey, I'm pregnant, it has to be from David, because she had already had her period. It could not have been uh, the product of any kind of time that she had with Uriah. So at the story now, Bathsheba, fate, Bathsheba is kind of set aside for, for a bit in the story. David now has an, a problem that he has done this thing and she is pregnant and she will she'll start showing that she is pregnant. Uriah will know the child is not his because he's not been around. Um, if, if she is questioned, it's going to come back to him. It's going to be a problem. So the first thing that David tries to do is to get Uriah to come back and to go spend time with his wife. So he has Uriah sent back for business, which, of course, when you're king, you can get people to move people around any way you want. And he tries to get Uriah to go home, to spend time with Bathsheba. But Uriah refuses. Uriah stays with the soldiers where the soldiers are in the city of Jerusalem. And when ba when David kind of asks what's going on here, he's like, how do you expect me to go home, sex with my wife, when the army of Israel is out in the field? This is 
couple important things. Uriah is a Hittite. And throughout the whole story, he is not an Israelite. But this is not one of those times where we should be casting aspersions on him or his integrity because of that. He might be a Hittite, but he is completely, fully devoted to David. He is one of David's 30. He is an intimate acquaintance of David. Uh, and here he is completely that one with the soldiery. He is a completely loyal, devoted soldier and servant of David. There is no way we can challenge or attack the integrity of Uriah the Hittite. Also, Bathsheba is not so seductive and, and not such a sex doll that there's that men have absolutely no control in front of her. Uh, Uriah is very much able to resist going and have sex with his wife because of the present circumstances that they are at war and normally he would not be anywhere near Uriah. And also, as, as the author of Samuel has intimated, David also would not have normally been around to see this or have anything to do with this at all. So because this is going on and Uriah is not playing along, uh, David is going to write to Joab and writes to Joab and tells him to put Uriah up in the front, right in front of the uh, strongest part of the force, and then to pull back. In so doing, Uriah is going to be exposed and Uriah is almost certainly going to be killed in the battle. He writes this up, hands it to Uriah, and Uriah then goes back to battle to Joab and hands Joab his own death warrant, basically. And Joab reads it, and Joab doesn't exactly do what he says. Uh, what ends up happening is that jo uh, Uriah is put in the heavy fighting, but there's not the withdrawal back, but jo Uriah does absolutely die in that fighting. And so Joab then wants to send a message back, and he even provides the clarification explanation. Joab is anticipating that David is going to say something like, and going back to the example of Abimelech, where uh, Abimelech back in the days of Judges, and maybe this is why that story is told, was became kind of uh, a byword for stupidity in war, because Abimelech died because he got too close to the wall and uh, got killed by a woman who threw a stone on his head. And so he's expecting this kind of censure for this messenger. So the messenger would come and say there was this war attack, you know, uh, but you're, you know, we, we got close to the wall, but Uriah died in the fighting. David doesn't do what Joab's anticipating. David just says, oh, well, you know, things happen, basically. Uh, he says when it comes to how that happened. Uh, you know, don't let this thing upset you. There is no way to anticipate whom the sword will cut down. Press the battle against the city and conquer it. Encourage him with these words. So now. Uriah has been dispatched. He is no more. When Bathsheba hears of it, she mourns. The text says that she mourns for him. We never know how what Bathsheba feels about her husband. Uh, there have been people who have, have acted like she really was just putting on an air, that she was really happy and excited about this whole thing. The text never says or even suggests any of that. She mourns for her husband. She observes the proper rituals. When that is done, David takes her, makes her his wife, and she bears a son to him. Nobody really has to know. The only people who might have any kind of indication about it is, is maybe Joab. And uh, trust me, Joab's got a whole lot more sins that David uh, could get Joab exposed for than Joab is going to be able to expose for David. They're all relatives. Uh, Joab is kind of the guy going out and doing the dirty work for David and will obtain the fruit of that uh, loyalty in the days of Solomon. According to everybody else, an unfortunate circumstance, and it just so happened that she came into his house and just so happened to get pregnant prickly and have a child, would not be a reason for scandal. But Samuel author wants you to know what David had done upset Yahweh. 
And I'll be very clear in verse 27. He says, what David had done upset Yahweh. So then Yahweh sends Nathan, the prophet, to David. And he comes with this story. There's two men in a certain city. There's one rich and one poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing but this little lamb he had acquired. He raised it. He grew up alongside him and his children. He used to eat for his food, drink from his cup, and sleep in his arms. It was like a daughter went to him. When a traveler arrived at the rich man's home, he did not want to use one of his own sheep or cattle to feed the traveler who had come to visit him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and cooked it for the man who had come to visit him. And David lashes out in anger. And we need to recognize this is a very hot, irrational anger. As surely as Yahweh lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Because he committed this cold-hearted crime, he must pay for the lamb four times over. The, the author doesn't get us into the head of David about this. It's tempting, and probably true, that David knows what he's done is not good. And he's got some guilt about that that might be underneath it. But let's give David the most charitable interpretation. That... At least at this time, David is still concerned for justice in his realm. And the exploitation here just burns him greatly to the point where he is demanding an extreme consequence. Where if this had really been a real story in Israel, he was going to have the rich man die. Now, is the rich man a jerk? Absolutely. Should the rich man have to remunerate the land for that poor man? Yes, certainly. Is fourfold appropriate? Yes. Is death? No. I mean, it's it, it's not, we don't kill people just for being jerks. So he's touchy about this. And we're supposed to see that he's touchy about this. And this is when Nathan says, you are that man. Let's listen very carefully to Nathan's indictment. This is what Yahweh God of Israel has said. I chose you to be king over Israel, and I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, put your master's wives into your arms. I also gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all that somehow seems insignificant, I would have given you so much more as well. Why have you shown such contempt for Yahweh's decrees by doing evil in my sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you have taken his wife to be your own wife. You have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. So now the sword will never depart from your house. For you have despised me by taking the wife of Uriah the Hittite as your own. This is what Yahweh has said. I'm about to bring disaster on you from inside your own household. Right before your eyes, I will take your wives and hand them over to your companion. You will go to bed with your wives in broad daylight. Although you have acted in secret, I will do this thing before all Israel and in broad daylight. To his credit, David then says, I have sinned against Yahweh. And you can go and look at Psalm 51 to see the more elaborate way that David sees. And we should believe that his recognition here is genuine. He, he, he is so moved by what he has done here that he thinks that he has been a sinner from birth. And of course, that line and its emotional anguish has uh, been turned into something far different in, as society has continued on. And Nathan says that uh, Yahweh forgave his sin. You're not going to die. There's going to be these consequences. and because you have treated Yahweh in contempt of this matter, that son that you've had, the product of your adultery, will die. We also need to be clear that throughout this whole narrative, throughout the whole indictment, it is David who is identified as the sinner. At no point was Bathsheba identified as having committed sin in this matter. Uh, yes, she is the lamb in a sense. Uh, you can't push that too far since it's his wife. But 
then we certainly have every reason to believe that Uriah was head over heels for uh, Bathsheba. Again, the text doesn't come out and say that, but Uriah has this attractive uh, daughter of a fellow warrior. Uh, he has every reason to be happy with her. Um, she she might well be happy with him. We Again, we, we are never told. And throughout this whole narrative, you will notice we have not heard at all from in any way, shape, or form what things look like from Bathsheba's perspective. Bathsheba's only thing that she has done are two things. She went with the messengers and she sent word that her that uh, she was pregnant. She also will mourn her husband, but that's also kind of responding to the actions. Everything else is done to her. And David is held responsible for Uriah's death, even though it was hand accomplished at the hand of the Ammonites. Uh, God is not going to be deceived by that subterfuge that David tried to construct. Uh, he's calling out David that David is responsible for this. And yes, Bathsheba and David's son would die. And that's part of the story in verses 13 through 23 of chapter 12. And this is the way the rest of the Second Samuel narrative is going to play out. The rest of David's story, outside the appendix, that is of David's earlier actions in Psalms uh, from verse chapter 21, 22, 23, and 24. From chapter 13 through chapter 20, the story is how Amnon, son of David, rapes Tamar, daughter of David. And how Amnon, son of David, was slaughtered by Absalom, son of David. How Absalom won the hearts of Israel, rebelled against his father. That David had to leave Absalom, uh, has relations in front of all Israel with the concubines of his father that Absalom will eventually die, contrary to David's own wishes, and David will lament, grieve deeply over Absalom. And then finally, the, the story of the short-lived insurrection of Sheba ben Bikri. And so you have there that fourfold response. David had Uriah killed because David has Uriah killed and, and had had adultery with his, his wife. Uh, Amnon rapes Tamar. Amnon is killed. Absalom is killed, and that child was killed. There's your fourfold response, as if David named his own punishment in a very real way. And this caused considerable instability, internal instability, that caused great distress, and likely was part of what led to the fact that the state of Israel did not become truly cohesive. That Judah had its king, you know, Saul was king over all, but Judah got his champion, David. Uh, the house of Saul went away, so everybody went with Judah's champion. But here even you see that Judah, Israel has to take David back. And you can only imagine what it would have been if David had gone to war with his army and gone to Rabbah. We would never have heard of Bathsheba. This whole story would never have happened. How much differently would everything have gone? Of course, that's a that completes a completely different and new scenario because, of course, the, the thing that's very interesting about it all, that we're told that David comforted Bathsheba after the death of their child, and she conceived and would give birth to a son named Solomon in Second Samuel 12, 24-25. And that the Samuel author will say that Yahweh loved Solomon and sent word by Nathan to name him Jedidiah because he is loved by Yahweh. So, we see all the, the, the consequences of, of David's sin. And then we begin the first Kings narrative, which again is flowing right from the second Samuel narrative. It's where it's good for us to think of in terms of second reigns and third reigns, like in the Greek. Uh, we're told David has gotten very old. And he's at the point now where he can't get warm. So they find a beautiful young woman named Abishag. 
who they bring to warm him up. And so she provides body warmth. But the text says he does not know her. He has no sexual relations with her. He is no longer potent and capable as a man in that way. And so his son Adonijah, the daughter of the son of Haggith, uh, sees this, and he goes out and he gets Joab and Abiathar to go with him, and he he says that he is king. He goes and identifies himself as king, and we're told that um, he didn't have anything to do with you know certain other people. He knows that the politics, and he knows the kind of the the, the different coalitions going on there. So it doesn't have anything to do with uh, Benaiah, Nathan, Bathsheba. Uh, Solomon, anybody like that. So Nathan comes to Bathsheba about this in chapter 1 and verse 11 and tells Solomon's mother Bathsheba, has it been reported to you that Haggath's son Adonijah has become king beyond our uh, master David's back? Now let me give you some advice how you can save your life and your son Solomon's life. Go visit King David and say to him, my master, O king, did you not solemnly promise your servant, surely your son Solomon will be king after me. He will sit on my throne. So why has Adonijah become king? While you are still there speaking to the king, I will arrive and verify your report. So, Bathsheba visits the king in his private quarters. He, she has very close access to him. Abishag was there keeping him warm. Bathsheba bows down and to the king. The king says, what do you want? Notice, the king has not summoned her. Uh, she's intimate enough with him that she can come without summoning. The king then is, gives her an audience. And she says, my master, you swore an oath to your servant by Yahweh your God, Solomon your son will be king after me, and he will sit on my throne. But now look, Adonijah has become king. But you, my master, the king, excuse me, are not even aware of it. He has sacrificed many cattle, steers, and sheep, and has invited all the king's son, Abiathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army, but he has not invited your servant Solomon. Now my master, O king, all Israel is watching anxiously to see who is named to succeed my master, the king on the throne. If a decision is not made, when my master the king is buried with his ancestors, my son Solomon and I will be considered state criminals. Then Nathan comes in and, 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 and intensifies it as she said, as he indicated he would. Now, a couple things to notice here. First of all, we now finally hear Bathsheba's voice. Bathsheba takes initiative here. And Bathsheba throws herself at the king. And she doesn't exactly parrot exactly what Nathan said. Uh, she puts it in her own words. She has that much agency here. But we need to recognize this is a matter of life or death. This is Bathsheba surviving, as we should not miss what was said. If Adonijah continues to become king, Solomon is a threat. Solomon will be dispatched, and so will his mother. We're going to see that what this is going to lead to Adonijah in a minute, because again, this is a zero-sum game. This is a problem of having multiple king sons, is that if there is any son of the king, uh, you know, that's going to be a challenge. And Adonijah is older. Adonijah may be the one closest to the to, to the oldest uh, living son at this point. Uh, and if nothing else, by right of primogeniture, Adonijah has a stronger claim than Solomon. So Bathsheba reminds David of this oath. There are some commentators who are going to question here and say, did David actually make this promise? Or is this Nathan and Bathsheba feeding David? This idea, seeding this idea in his adult old age that this would happen, and therefore trying to you know create their own conspiracy here, and that what ends up happening in this story is David is carried along by the suggestions of Nathan and, and Bathsheba, and makes this proclamation that we see because David then responds, summon Bathsheba. So we're to understand that you know Nathan has when when Nathan comes in, Bathsheba has left. When Bathsheba comes in. Uh, the king swore an oath, as certainly as Yahweh lives, 
If he was rescued me from every danger, I will keep today the oath I swore to you by Yahweh God of Israel. Surely Solomon, your son, will be king after me. He will sit in my place on the throne. Bathsheba then bowed down to the king with her face to the floor and said, May my master King David live forever. Now that line is very much just what you say. And of course, the whole engagement here is a realization that no, the king's not going to live forever. And in fact, the whole reason for the conversation is the king is not going to live forever. David's then going to tell Nathan exactly what to do so that Solomon will be properly anointed. They all go, take Solomon to Gihon, and he is anointed by Zadok the priest to become king. And he is established as king, and Adonijah's whole thing falls apart because the greater part of the administration is with Solomon, and Solomon becomes king. And we need to, you know, recognize that part of what the Samuel King's narrative is doing is to deal with the scandal that David's son Solomon follows David, and Solomon is the son of David from Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, or who had been the wife of Uriah. And this is a scandal because Solomon would have been one of his youngest sons by a long shot. And this is something Solomon is well aware of, as we're going to see in a moment. And so part of this is explaining it all. And it would be more acceptable to consider the possibility that Bathsheba and Nathan are actually scheming against the king here if it were not for the fact that in Chronicles, uh, in First Chronicles, uh, David very much in his strength goes out publicly and declares that Solomon, his son, will be king after him. And as, as Christians who, who take great confidence in the witness of Scripture together, uh, we're going to take the chronicler's witness, and therefore we're going to read this narrative in Kings as Adonijah knows what David wants, and Adonijah is trying to subvert that. And I think that's probably what's behind the fact that uh, the uh, author of 1 Kings makes this parenthetical statement about him in verse 6 of chapter 1. Now, his father had never corrected him by saying, why do you do such things? He was very handsome and had been born right after Absalom. Uh, so the idea that David never told him, he never questioned or challenged him is to get us to believe that Adonijah is taking on a presumptive role he has no right to take on. That it's Adonijah who is being presumptive, because Adonijah does not uh, appreciate the station in which he is. Now, uh, we can argue whether or not David was right or wrong to uh, choose Solomon. The text is going to do everything, does everything it can. The author of Kings is going to do everything he can to show you that David made the right choice. Probably why we're told that Nathan sent word that Yahweh loves Solomon. And again, to think about that, Yahweh loves Solomon, even the uh, what happened to Solomon's older brother, right? Soon after, but Solomon is loved, and Solomon will be the one who will become king, and Solomon is going to have the stability his father never had, and uh, Solomon is still going to be reckoned as, 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 a, as a great king in many ways even though he has his problems that we will see in 1 Kings chapter 11. So now, David has died after having a, a godfather moment with Solomon. Solomon is establishing his king. In fact, we're told in second, 1 Kings chapter 2 and in verse 12 that Solomon sat on his father David's throne. His royal authority was firmly solidified. And then we're told that Adonijah visits Bathsheba. Bathsheba now, by the way, no longer is in survival mode. Bathsheba is now queen mother. 
and again, the text doesn't come out and talk about this, but the queen mother is a very influential position at court. She is a, a very honored woman, and we're going to see how honored here in a moment. Adonijah comes in, and actually asks, do you come in peace? And Adonijah says, yes, I have something to say to you. She said, say. You know the kingdom was not was mine, and all Israel considered me king. But then the kingdom was given to my brother, for Yahweh decided it should be his. Now I'd like to ask for you for just one thing. Please don't refuse me. She says, go ahead and ask. He said, please ask King Solomon if he would give me Abishag the Shunammite as wife, for he won't refuse you. Bathsheba replied, and he says, that's fine. But literally, good. It's good. And would ask Solomon. And so then, Bathsheba visits King Solomon and speaks to him on Adonijah's behalf. We're told in verse 19, the king got up to greet her, bowed to her, and then sat on his throne. He bows to Bathsheba. She's his mother. We're not told that she bows to him. We saw her bow to David. She might have bowed to Solomon. I don't think that she's going to deny that the authority of her son Solomon. But notice the role she now has as queen mother. She has been stabilized up there as, as the queen mother. So that Solomon, the king himself, who is the one receiving the bowing from everybody else, bows down to her. And so he, in fact, even orders for a throne to be brought for the king's mother, and she sat at his right hand, again, showing the, the honor being bestowed to her. She said, I would like to ask you for just one small favor. Please don't refuse me. And notice how she's kind of made it more diminutive. And he said... Uh, go ask and ask my mother for all that. I refuse you. She said, allow Abishag the Shunammite to be given to your brother Adonijah's wife. King Solomon answered his mother, why just request Abishag the Shunammite for him? Since he is my older brother, you should also request a kingdom for him, for Abiathar the priest and for Joab the son of Zeruiah. King Solomon then swore an oath to Yahweh, may God judge me severely if Adonijah does not pay for this request with his life. And Adonijah will be, will be executed this day. And Benaiah's son Jehoiada went and did it, and Adonijah is eliminated and dispatched for this. And this also becomes the reason Abiathar is sent away. And by the way, Solomon now has fulfilled the prophecy. And all the way back in the days of Samuel, that the descendants of Eli would no longer be serving before Yahweh. Abiathar is the last servant, last descendant of Eli to serve uh, before Yahweh. Now the line of priests are going to be the Zadokites. And the Zadoki will become known as the Sadducee in the New Testament period. Now, we don't hear anything else about Bathsheba at this point. He's only mentioned in 1 Chronicles 3.5 as Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, in the superscription of Psalm 51.1, explaining that this is David's psalm he, after he uh, had was his sin was exposed by Nathan. And he she does show up in Jesus' genealogy, but she's not called Bathsheba there in Matthew 1.6. Matthew calls her the wife of Uriah. Solomon, son of David, by the wife of Uriah. So we look at the story of Bathsheba, and as we've kind of been doing this, as we've been going through to, to really point it out deliberately, the question that we have to ask is, who is Bathsheba? And really, Bathsheba has done a good job of being the catalyst to expose the hearts, minds, and thoughts of a lot of people throughout time. His commentaries have spilled all kinds of ink to make Bathsheba out to be a seductress, a wanton adulteress. And these days, she's seen as the oppressed victim. And everybody rushes in with their assumptions about Bathsheba. And it's often not unrelated to their assumptions about David. And that's why we need to push it all aside to see how little we know about Bathsheba. She's acted upon often. She does act herself. 
But in none of it do we get a real essence or understanding about much of her. We do not know how she felt about David's summons and their liaison. She mourns for her husband Uriah. We can take it at face value and imagine she had affection for her husband. Others have assumed it's a feign and a pretense that she's really excited now that she's going to be with David. She might have been. We can't say. We don't know. We can't presume. The text says David comforted Bathsheba after their son died. We don't know how much comfort Bathsheba took from it. We do know Bathsheba recognized her fate was intertwined with that of her son. And Bathsheba does show some agency in speaking for herself. But we need her in that situation. She's a survivor trying to survive. And either Solomon becomes king and they survive, or he doesn't and they won't. Even with that request she makes to add, even the thought process about Adonijah's request is completely opaque. And you can dump on there. Is she really so naive to think, oh yeah, Adonijah should certainly marry Abishai. That's totally fine. Nothing will go wrong with her. I'm just going to ask my son for that, and he'll certainly do that for him. I mean, it's possible. Or, when she says, good, does she see that Adonijah has just signed his own death warrant? And that she's more than happy to go to Solomon and to make this request and to act like this is just a small thing. Can you give Abishag to uh, to Adonijah, your brother, as wife? And so recognizing Solomon is then going to say, why don't you just give him the whole kingdom while you're at it? Who's going to die for this? You can't know. Because the text doesn't make known much of anything about how Bathsheba experienced all these events. And thus, how we fill the gaps of the story Bathsheba tells us more about us than it does about her. Because through it all, we never see the story from her viewpoint. Now, Bathsheba has re-entered the discourse continually because of what happened to her becomes a cipher for all kinds of culture war and ideological issues. A lot of people today, as in the past, have wanted to overexalt David, turn him into this hero, paragon of righteous masculinity. The Bathsheba episode is a perpetual embarrassment for that posture from the days of the chronicler until now. And it's very tempting for people who want to make much of David to take a dim view of Bathsheba and will assert she is a seductress and enjoyed what happened to her and will attempt to pin the blame on her as an adulteress somehow. And commentators from Calvin until the modern age have embarrassed themselves by what they projected upon Bathsheba. Now, these days, we, we've been reevaluating the treatment of women in the matter of power dynamics, and therefore there's been a much greater sensitivity shown to Bathsheba. Because from beginning to end, the Samuel author indicts David, and only David, as the party responsible for the sin at, because he was at home when he should have not been, he was looking from the roof where he should not have been looking, he summoned a woman he should not have summoned, he had relations with a woman who was not given to him, he conspired to cover up the deeds, first by wanting Uriah to have reason to think the child would be his own, and that not working, having Uriah die in battle. And according to modern understandings of power dynamics and consent, Bathsheba, as a subject of David, had no room or space to really consent or to deny the king. In modern terms, we can comfortably consider David as having raped Bathsheba. Perhaps it would that not have been thus understood in the ancient Near East. But we have to be clear about something. Bathsheba is never explicitly reckoned as guilty of adultery. Blame is always on David. And thus, even in the ancient context, there is a recognition of the power imbalance. That means Bathsheba is exonerated of wrongdoing. 
if she were really responsible in any way, shape, or form, she is an adulteress and should have been treated accordingly, but there is not a word breathed about any of that in the narrative. And it's David who reaped the consequences. His child of adultery died. His son would rape his daughter. That son would die at the hand of another brother, which who would rise in rebellion against him. And Bathsheba's grandfather would abandon David for him. That son would die in that rebellion. David paid fourfold for taking the wife of Uriah. And throughout it all, Bathsheba is David's wife and in David's house. Through all that stuff going on, all that drama, Bathsheba's in the house of David as David's wife. And we can only imagine how it would have gone for her, how she would have been viewed by the other women and people in the household, how that dynamic would have worked out. And we do well to step back to look at the historical data behind the narrative crafted by the Samuel and King's authors. That after a period of judges, warlords who organized parts of Israel against their oppressors, and a furtive attempt at a monarchy with Abimelech, Saul was anointed king, but his dynasty faded after himself in Ishbael, replaced by an even more successful charismatic warlord, David, whose lineage would continue to reign over Judah for at least another 400 years. And of all the sons of David, the one who would reign after him, Solomon, was the second child he had with Bathsheba, whom he had taken immorally. As we said, Solomon was nowhere close to being the oldest son, or even the oldest surviving son, as Adonijah makes clear. It is truly a wonder how Yahweh would love the second child of David and Bathsheba, especially after he condemned the first child and the liaison itself. But all of this is Bathsheba's vindication. She becomes the queen mother. However she felt about all the things going on around her and done to her, she is the survivor. And Jesus, the Son of God, would be in his matrilineal line, have Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, wife of Uriah, taken by David immorally, the cause of great grief to David, and yet her son Solomon would reign. And so Bathsheba and Solomon should remind us of the inscrutable ways of our God and the importance of trusting in him in or despite our circumstances. And so we do well to recognize the deep complexities and difficulties of Bathsheba and her plight to be careful what our projections on her would reveal about ourselves, and to remember that through it all, we never really hear what Bathsheba has thought or felt for the entire experience. So what should we say about Bathsheba? We'd love to hear your thoughts. Please let us know in the comments and subscribe to us where you found us. Let us go to God in prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. We're so thankful for all the blessings you've given us. Uh, we're thankful for the witness that you provide in Scripture. And Father, we pray that we would humbly approach some of these stories and to recognize that many things have been made known, but so much more has not been made known, and to be careful how we try to fill in the details. We pray, Father, to have a, a good understanding of what has been revealed regarding Bathsheba and to recognize the difficult circumstances that she found herself in throughout this whole story and to see how you vindicated her and that she would become the queen mother, and that her son Solomon would reign, and that the line of Jesus includes uh, Solomon and Bathsheba. And that we put our trust in you, even if we find ourselves in difficult circumstances. And even though it may seem like we have no hope, and things look bad for us, that you will be our vindication in the end. Continue to guide and direct us until the Lord Jesus returns, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. We're so thankful that you've joined us. If we can be of any service to you, please let us know. Please reach out to us at benchurchofchrist.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube.
May the Lord bless and keep you until we're able to meet again.